success is really made up of in any business, in any field, in any career, really, a bunch of little steps that lead finally to some big moment. And what was being taught in many of the business schools and sort of popular business culture was to set your sail on a one-year, a three-year, a five-year, um, make some plan, put some numbers in place, put some targets, KPIs, and stuff like that, and guide the ship in that direction. Well, the problem with that is that it doesn't allow for any creativity to come up. Hello, visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all types. Hi, my name is John Miles, and I wanted to welcome you to this episode of the Passion Start Podcast, where it is my job to interview high achievers from all walks of life and unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you lessons, tools, and activities that you can use to achieve a passion-driven life. Now, let the journey begin. Thank you for joining me today on the Passion Struck Podcast. Maya Angelou once said, you can't use up creativity. The more you use, the more you have. And that quote is a great lead-in to today's guest, Nir Bashand, who is the author of The Creator Mindset. And today we're going to talk about the idea of creativity and how, as Maya said, you can't use it up in your life and the importance of it and why so many companies today are failing to use creativity to their advantage in unlocking their companies and taking them to new heights. But before we get to that, let me tell you a little bit more about Nier. From working with Hollywood stars like Woody Harrelson and Rod Stewart, Nier discovered something that may shock you. These creative superstars aren't all that different from you or I. It's just that they have mastered a method of repeatable and predictable creativity. A type of creativity that anyone can learn. And it turns out that's the same type of creativity that can be used in businesses and careers everywhere. Nier has taught thousands of leaders and individuals around the globe how to harness the power of creativity to improve profitability, increase sales, boost customer service, and ultimately create more meaning in their work. Working with clients such as AT&T, Microsoft, Ace Hardware, the NFL Network, EA Sports, Suzuki, Activision, and JetBlue, Nier has spent the last two decades working on a formula to codify creativity in business. That formula is found in his book, The Creator Mindset, which has been translated into two languages and released worldwide by McGraw-Hill in August 2020. I'm so excited to have Nir on the show, and you are going to love this episode. Thank you again for listening or watching. Welcome to the Passion Struck Podcast. And today, as I talked about in the introduction, I am so happy to have Nir Bashan, someone who I met through a mutual friend, Caroline Johnson. And if you haven't checked out her book, Jack Girl, you've got to. It's about her experiences being a female F-18 pilot. But Nira, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. I am very excited to have you here today. And I think the audience is going to love to hear your story about creativity. And we're going to get to that later on in the episode. But before we do, I always think it's good 
for the listener to get a starting point and kind of understand the journey that you've been taking. And as I told you before the show, our purpose with this podcast is to help the underdogs, the beaten, broken, bored of the world, unleash their creativity, which I know you'll love, and unlock that passion-driven life that they want. So as I was looking at your background, I saw that you initially didn't start necessarily in the path where you are today. You went to USC and, and got a music degree. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what led to that start for you? Yeah, definitely. So I, you know, I came to the U.S. when I was three years old in 1980 and from Israel, and it was hard to learn the language, right? So I gravitated naturally toward music. And as people may, it might be a controversial thing to say that 80s music was like good. Um, but, you know, I listened to a lot of music and I, and I loved it. And I remember being in ESL classes, you know, learning how to speak English. And, you know, the teacher would say, hey, um, listen to the radio, listen to music and learn the words and the words will help you uh, sort of get a uh, an impression of the language. And so that that drew me to music at a very, very young age. And so um, I, I've been in band since I was 15 or actually more like 13 years old, um, you know, playing covers uh pink floyd and the who and like you know all the classics led zeppelin and so when it came time for college i wanted to go to a school where i'd be introduced to better musicians and learn the craft right i was always sort of ear taught i never learned how to read or write before college and uh read or write music so i decided you know what this is going to be really great i'm going to go to this school they're going to teach me this stuff. I'm going to meet some great band members and I'm going to be in a touring band for the rest of my life. That's what I thought would happen. But as you know, life doesn't really go according to, you know, plans. That's for sure. So what, what was your instrument of choice? So I was a double bass player forever. And then I switched over to electric in college. Um, and at the time, the the music school at SC was really classical. I mean, they were training first chairs and stuff like that. And they were like, what, why would you plug in a bass? Like, why would you amplify a beautiful, you know, historic instrument? And so I remember I formed a jazz, I had to call it a jazz combo, even though it was a rock band, um, you know, in order to kind of justify the fact that we were, you know, plugging instruments in and, Today, they, they contacted me to do kind of a talk for them to raise money. And I looked on their website and it's all like, you know, all of that classic stuff is gone now. It's just like, you know, it's a music school, whether it's pop or country or, you know, classical. It just, you know, it's all about music. And I'm so happy the, that they evolved that way. But it wasn't like that when I was there. Music is something I, I've always had a passion for in my own life and very early in both my kids' lives, uh, we got them started playing piano because I, I had always learned that if you could play piano, you can pretty much learn any instrument afterwards. And so both of them picked it up, you know, when they were three, four, five years old. Um, and my son ended up um, getting a huge passion also around playing percussion. Oh, cool. Um, and then having that piano background allowed him to pick it up very quickly in middle school, um, still, still plays a, a ton today. <clears throat> but my daughter 
um, who, who is a person who ended, who turned out becoming our kind of rock star. <clears throat> She's in two or three different high school bands. She still plays piano and she does a lot of classic piano, but when she was approaching what instrument to play in these bands, um, I was kind of wanting her to play guitar or drums. And she said to me, she goes, dad, what, what do you think the average composition of these bands are? It's, it's, it's young, <laughs> young guys. And what do you think they want to do? They either want to be the lead guitarist, the lead singer or the drummer. So if I want to get in a band, the best thing I could do is become a bassist because everyone wants a girl in the band and most of them aren't going to have a bassist. So she started, she picked up the bass and uh, it's been rocket ship since then. And, you know, she can play the other instruments as well, but um, that's been her ticket. But how cool, how cool. What kind of, ba- what kind of music is she playing? All kinds or? Well, she, so she has jumped into three completely different types of band. One plays um, kind of nineties alternative. Another one plays more um, hard, hard rock. Um, and then the other one is kind of Weezer, um, I guess that more that genre. So how cool, you know, people don't talk enough. I don't think about how important having a musical background is and what it does to the brain, right? It, music is an amazingly analytical construct. You think that it's, oh, it's creativity and, oh, it's just let loose on a guitar. It's not. The instruments, um, All almost every string instrument is very regimented into a quarter, uh, a half step construct, right? So it, it literally is uh, set up in a way to harmonize with another instrument or play together or, or you know, um, counterpoint with some other instruments, so on and so forth. It's there. The whole craft of Western music uh, built around the half step is a very regimented sort of thing. You know, certain chords work together with other certain chords and certain chords do not work with others and so on and so forth. I remember when I was in college, we did um, two years of oral skills where we had to listen to stuff and, and then kind of, you know, go, oh, that's in, you know, D major or whatever. And, and we did that. And then we did uh, music theory and counterpoint, which was all math, all of it. It right. was 100% math. Um, so, um, so yeah, people, I don't think understand how that is uh, part of music. And the other thing is it, music awakens a different part of the brain that allows you to kind of learn in a, in a very different way. And musicians tend to do really well in in college but they also tend to do really well in in careers later yeah it's benefited both my kids in many different ways my son um is really a creative and he was the one who similar to you learned mostly through hearing i mean i can remember him hearing like he could hear a foo fighter song and you know next time he heard it he could pretty much drum through the whole whole thing or, or major portions of it Olivia is much more um, technical in the way she approaches things and she, you know, can read music extremely well. So she um, will look at a song and then look at YouTube videos of the bassist playing it, um, understand their different techniques, and she approaches it much more technically. And I think that's how they both approach their, their lives too. Um, she <laughs> is a voracious reader and he's more the, the creative buff. So, 
you you went from this start in music, and then I saw that you also got a master's in film. So what uh, was that transition like? So w- going through college at, at USC, you can't help the run into the film school, which is next door, literally next door to the school of music. So all of my classes were within 15 feet of the other building, which was the film building. So you meet the the students coming out of the building, you have chats, right? And and so I did a lot of sound for movies when I was in uh, when I was in SC. Um, I would sit in a recording studio and and work on songs or work on uh, audio, uh, tweaking dialogue all the way down to effects, you know, a bird or, you know, tw- uh, sort of in right. the background or a dog barking in a scene, so on and so forth. So um, I started to get kind of bit by the film bug and I graduated and wanted to start making films. And so I did and, and um, was pretty successful made a couple of short films that won a ton of awards and that kind of thing yeah yeah and then um i decided that i wanted to go to film school to to really sort of learn what i'm doing and so i went to art center in pasadena where you can't but help wander into the advertising program because the it's like one of those things that have been connected for, I don't know, a hundred years or so of the college's history. And so I ended up taking a lot of advertising classes and started to, you know, make films and and do well uh, on, on some of those films. I, I made a documentary that sold to universal. I had a production company in Hollywood with employees and that whole thing. Um, but then I was always kind of working in advertising. I would, I would get, um, different, uh, different agencies would bring me on, Hey, you know, can you help with this project or can you help with that project? We really like your vision. We saw your movies and stuff like that. And so I started working more and more in advertising. It was kind of crazy. And, and I started, you know, between graduating art center and, and doing what I do today, I've had several companies, different, all kinds of different things. Um, and I kind of noticed that in order to do well in any business, you had to be really, really creative. And I asked a lot of people, you know, that I admired in the field, I would say, hey, that was a really creative move. You guys put out, um, you know, a digital coupon or whatever, and you got all these signups and you gave this thing away for free. And how did you guys think of that? And a lot of people weren't telling me how. They would be like, well, it's something you either have or you don't. I'm like, wait a second, but I'm creative. Like, I've been a musician my whole life. I made movies and stuff like that. Can't that creativity work in business also? And what I found was absolutely yes, that that not only can it work, it works extremely well. And it's something that a lot of people don't know about. That was the first thing I learned. And the second thing I learned was that in order to be really, really successful, you had to apply that creativity and nobody was talking. Nobody. Nobody was saying, hey, this is how I did it. Or this is what I feel is a way you know, to get more creative in your business. So I started to look at the marketplace and I said, you know, there's got to be a book on this, right, John? There's got to be a book on how to be creative in business. There's no book. 
Every book on creativity and business is about the why. Why should I be creative? And why should I, you know, do this? And I would read, I read everything on the market that had to do with creativity. And I got really excited because it was like, yeah, cool. You know, you'd flip the pages. Whoa, yeah, I get it. I should be more creative. And then at the end, it was kind of flat, right? Because it never gave you an instruction. So like any entrepreneur, right. uh, you know, like you and, and your listeners, I found a, a gap in the market and I took it, you know, I was like, I'm writing a book. I'm going to write the how-to guide for businesses, business owners, and people in their career on how, specifically how to be more creative. Well, that's great. Um, and a great lead in to the topic. And it's a similar, similar, um, scope and approach to what I've been doing with uh, the, the book we've talked about, I've, I've written. And that is a lot of people have talked about, you know, finding your why or purpose in life. Um, but people haven't really talked about how do you deploy it? How do you cultivate it? How do you, you know, once you come up with this, you know, idea that you want about passion, then how do you take action on it? You know, what drives you to make that choice and move forward? And so, you know, that's what this whole journey about passion struck is about. It's, you know, part of it is helping the why, but more importantly, it's cultivating it. So, you know, I think we took similar approaches because I based passion struck off of observing, interviewing, working with literally hundreds of, of different uh, business leaders and seeing this approach work time and time again. But as you're saying, a lot of them don't want to tell you how. And you kind of took the same approach with the creator mindset of following and looking at these examples and then, similar to me, recognizing patterns that emerged. So what was the first pattern that, that you saw and what caught your eye about it? So the first pattern that I recognized uh, very early on was that people who do extremely well in business have a methodical approach to little victories. That was the first thing I noticed. And what what I started to kind of dig in and learn was that success is really made up of, in any business, in any field, in any career, really, a bunch of little steps that lead finally to some big moment. And what was being taught in many of the business schools and sort of popular business culture was to set your sale on a one year, a three year, a five year, um, make some plan, put some numbers in place, put some targets, KPIs and stuff like that, and guide the ship in that direction. Well, the problem with that is that it doesn't allow for any creativity to come up. It is 100% a strict and true analytical approach. And unless we are combining the creative with the analytics, we are performing at half of our potential, right? We're, we'll never quite get there and we'll always wonder why. And I, I've worked with some, you know, Fortune 100 companies. And literally, I come in after the big five consultants have come in. And what have they done? John, they've managed some efficiency to 0.003%. And every single time I come in, I'm meeting with uh, somebody in the C-suite. I'm meeting with a board of directors. I'm meeting with um, a leadership team. Every time somebody dials up, it's classic, right? And I look up on the projector, right? And and it's, look what we've done. And near, look, we've saved, you know, shaved off 0.2 seconds on this process. 
And look, look how great we are. And I'm like, okay, guys, and why am I here? They're like, well, because it's just stagnated near it. Just, so it improved and then it flat plateaued, improved and then plateaued. And we're like, you know, we're wondering why we can't get there and, and why, why won't it continue up? So on and so forth. So what I've noticed is that the little victories are missing from the culture of the organization. Uh, there was a ice cream salesman many years ago who wanted to sell a bunch of ice cream machines, right? And his his mindset was analytical, like everyone, like most people. And it was, I'm going to sell a bunch of machines. I'm going to get a bunch of contact. We'll sell a bunch of machines and it's going to be great. They were like milkshake. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers... According to a recent survey, saying Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passionstruck. Hey, it's Jermaine from the Healing Time Podcast. Listen, I know you may not need this, but I know you know somebody who's broken, somebody who has lost hope, somebody just down and out. Tell them that the Healing Time Podcast is here. It is a new day. Let's get better together. Do you miss the nostalgia and hilarity of the 90s TV sitcom, The Nanny? Join me, Amanda. And me, Joseph. Each week as we dish about every episode, character, and iconic moment from the show on our podcast, A Fine Podcast. With fun segments breaking down the scenes, memorable one-liners, and more is the ultimate destination for fans of Fran Drescher and the Sheffield family. Follow and subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. We're on video, too. To laugh along with us every week. Your inner 90s kid is calling. Tune in to A Fine Podcast today. Machines. And so, you know, worked for a while, but then one day it, it stagnated like every single, every single analytical construct. And so it stagnated out and he was like, well, wait a second. Why, why is it stagnating? And you know, this sort of thing. And he noticed there was a restaurant in LA that kept ordering machines con consistently. They weren't the biggest customer ever, John, but they kept ordering machines, right? So he's like, wait a second, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go check it out. That's a 
creative concept, right? There is no analytics in the world that will tell you that booking a plane ticket and a hotel and driving to see, you know, some customer that orders a machine every half a year, but they're, you know, a popular, uh, a frequent customer is a good idea. That's like, doesn't work. If you look at the numbers only, it doesn't work, but it's creative, right? And so he went there and noticed there was a line out the door. I mean, 45 minutes, he stood in line, got to the front of the line, had the best burger, He's ever had, right? The best cheeseburger on earth. And the guy's name was Ray Kroc. And that restaurant was McDonald's. So unless we're looking at all those little victories, hmm, who's that customer that keeps ordering stuff that I get along with really well? What are those little victories that are happening that take me where I need to go? Unless we're doing that, we're stuck in an analytical construct. And so that was the thing that I noticed from the get-go, eight years ago, when I started this journey to write this book, which took, by the way, six years, took six years to write this thing. Um, I noticed very early on that people and businesses that embrace little victories and don't worry so much about the one or the three or the five-year trajectory, but worry about you know those meaningful little tidbits along the way ended up doing really, really well. Did you know that Forbes magazine recently cited that 70% of individuals who do personal development, masterminds, and one-on-one coaching benefited from better work performance, increased communication skills, and overall better relationships. And we at PassionStruck are obsessed with self-development, coaching, and mentorship. That is why we've created a free resource to help you unlock your hidden potential. Because people doing great things in business and life are just like you, only they've had a coach along the way. And we've got that covered too. Let us show you the systems and frameworks that we teach growth-minded individuals to help them step into their sharp edges, execute on their passion journeys, and get predictable results time and time again. Go to passionstruck.com coaching right now and let's get igniting. I, I have this philosophy where I, I talk about it in the lens of inputs and outputs. And, you know, I think you've got to keep your eye on the output, but I have this philosophy I call the bee and turtle effect. And I often talk about Elon Musk is probably the biggest perfecter of it because what he does is he has that long-term goal that you talked about, um, which is kind of like that turtle where it needs to be patient, slow, and methodical but similar to the B and the B is all about daily activity. He's very caught up in the daily inputs and more importantly, the creativity that's coming from those daily inputs that he's, you know, a part of, because I think he knows it's a a magnifying effect that if you do input upon input upon input, not only are you going to reach that output, but it's going to have so much more an explosive force, which is exactly what you've, seen now with Tesla, SpaceX, and everything else he's, he's doing, and the creative ways and marketing that they use in the background. Um, and, and I remember, you know, I have a, a similar story to your uh, McDonald's one, where probably 15 years ago, I met uh, one of my mentors. And at the time, when I first met him, he was a, a VP at Oracle. He was one of the fastest rising stars. Um, Larry Ellison had actually picked him to be a potential successor and, and become the CEO someday. And out of the blue, he decided to take a sabbatical and ends up, you know, just thinking that where he is, isn't where he wanted to go. And 
through about two years in the sabbatical swimming with dolphins one day, he, he got this idea um, and then started to change his life around it. And he used various similar model to what you're talking about in that it, it was that output he was looking at, but he started this creative approach where he was using marketing and developing a new category of solution that he called the cloud, which no one at that time had heard of. And he would go on these road shows, do these crazy stunts, get people motivated about this concept of the cloud. And at first, everyone told him he was crazy. And then, you know, how could you leave that job to do this? And, you know, you look at it now and it's salesforce.com. And that person was Mark Benioff. And the way he got there, um, if you read any of the books um, about it, is he used this creativity approach and used intense marketing and creativity to really launch the brand and get people to be energized by, by what this new concept could be. Over the past eight years, and I know for me, it's been a journey to write the book as well. What were you know, some of the fears or obstacles that you encountered along the way? You know, why, why does it take you six, six years to write something like this? How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, yeah, John, I, you know, here's the thing, right? Um, I am a voracious reader, uh, just like your daughter. I think that is so brilliant that she reads so much. And uh, I, I constantly look at what's on, in the marketplace, who released what, and I read nonstop. I read a book a week. I read only nonfiction. I don't read any fiction <laughs> whatsoever, novels and stuff like that. Maybe I shouldn't admit that out loud, but I read only nonfiction and only business titles because I want to continually improve. And the amount of quality out there right now, it's unbelievable. It's just so good, you know, uh, the books that are being released and, and, and stuff like that. But what I've noticed is some books out there in business are written by academics and I love academics. I love school, right? I have a master's degree. I get it. I have, you know, no doubt that, that, you know, it's really important um, and that it's helpful. But what I've noticed is that there is a lot of books that lack real world know-how and the lack of real world know-how comes from somebody who's been struggling to get to a position, struggling to find an audience, struggling to find a position, struggling to to get somewhere. And then when a couple of things start to click and the and the machine starts to move, these are incredible life lessons. So my particular project comes from years and years of just getting things wrong in order to get them right, right? Making a bunch of mistakes and then figuring, hey, here's a good path. And my book was written while I was working. I was grinding it out. I was on a plane to see a client. Here's an hour. The kids are getting up in the morning. Oh, goodness. You know, they're sleeping in another half hour. Get the machine quick. Write a paragraph. You know, it was that kind of thing. And the book came together over so many little snippets of, of time and, and that sort of thing because I was busy working, right? I was busy doing it. I, you know, I don't have the luxury of having classes on Mondays and Thursdays and, you know, being able to write Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, right? right. And, and that sort of thing. And, and the other thing is, I don't think people talk enough about this, but, you know, there's su such a romanticized 
vision of writing a book, right? You got a cabin in the woods and there's, you know, it's a, there's a bit of smoke coming out of the fireplace, right? And that would be you know, the Matthew, that would be the Matthew McConaughey book that just came out, Green Lights. That's exactly <laughs> what he did. Yeah, it's just like, you know, but it, it's a grind, man. It's like, oh, the client call got canceled. Great. I have half an hour. You know, um, I'm doing some keynote or whatever and I'm backstage and, you know, there's some scheduling delays. Okay, I can I can bump everything a half hour, no problem. Open the machine and write three paragraphs. I mean, literally that's that's kind of the the process. And people don't also talk about the disappointment that happened. Uh, you know, I spent 6 years writing it. And John, I, I met with an agent and she's, she was wonderful, but on her first call, on the first call, she told me, take your manuscript that you spent six years writing and drag it into the trash and then hit delete. And I'm like, are you serious? She's yeah, like, yeah. yes, because it's 85,000 words, which is like 462 pages or I don't know, something like that. And I was like, why? This is good. I spent six years backstage, half an hour, you know, crying. And she was like, well, if you wrote that much, then you clearly don't know what you're doing and you need to focus down and it's too long. And, you know, and and she gave me 24 hours to think about it. And I remember talking to my wife and I said, you know, what do you think I should do? And she was like, listen to an expert, you know, you got to listen to people who know more than you about publishing. So I did. And I was really glad that I did because through that, you know, adversity came, you know, the book it's with McGraw Hill. We got four offers to publish, um, from all the big, uh, you know, three main publishers, one medium sized publisher, I guess, uh, you know, McGraw Hill has been a really great partner on this book and has done a lot to push it. Um, so it's been, it's been a really great road, but I couldn't have predicted that had I have not, you know, really been creative and listened to sort of different inputs and have that ability to change with what right. comes up. And so that that's what the writing process has been for me. I'm sure you have a similar story. I guess for me, it was always in the back of my mind, um, but I didn't really realize I I had a gift for writing until... Um, I took a very unlikely path. I was, uh, I had, a, I have an, another company called Ovesto where we perform fractional and interim services as chief executive officer, chief operating officer, et cetera. And I was offered to go in as uh, kind of the chief marketing officer and associate publisher for a newly launched uh, business startup. And I never in my life thought I was going to become a, a publisher of anything. Um, but um, for about a year, um, I had to take over the editor-in-chief. And so we were putting out about 20 articles a week. And during this time, I just found many topics that interest me from gut health to social corporate social responsibility to um, what was happening around the brain and brain research. Um, you, you know, I've had some uh, traumatic brain injuries myself. And so I started writing articles and not realizing that I had always enjoyed writing. I had just been doing it as part of my corporate job in the, in the form of proposals, business cases, et cetera, but not cre- creativity. So for me, once I learned that I could actually creative write, then the biggest thing um, was how do you turn that into stories? 
because that's what people really want to read. It's kind of like this podcast. It's, it's they want to hear a story about uh, what you're doing. And so it was that time as uh, that editor in chief that I really, you know, came to the conclusion, you know, I, I could, it's within me to write this, this book and I have to just stop putting all these imaginary fears in front of me uh, that are stopping me from doing it. And once I started um, and I started it uh, just before COVID hit a year ago, it, it kind of just, in my case, poured out of me in about six to eight weeks. I had the dedicated time to do it. And wow, you know, it was just one thing after another. Um, but I think it's because I compartmentalized it for many years. So when I finally did it, I had all the examples, I had everything uh, lined up. So, but yes, anyone who says it's not uh, a, a struggle or there aren't those days where you're just beating your head against uh, the writer's block, so to speak, um, has never written a book because it happens. Um, and, you know, I just, I'm not sure what you did, but some of those writing days, I just kind of held myself to a word count and, you know, I would take breaks or something, but, you know, sometimes you force your way through 2000 words, you reach, you read it the next day and you're like, it's a load of crap. And other times, um, you know, you're, you're like, man, I've got a gem here. Um, so for someone who hasn't read the, the book yet, um, can you give them <clears throat> a couple lessons on how they can become a creator in their own business setting? Yeah, definitely. So the little victories is in the book. Um, there's a whole chapter that explores how to, you know, make little victories, how to appreciate them, how to find them in your business. Um, I talk about um, the art of shutting up in the book of how sometimes you just need to shut your mouth and let other people talk and listen. I talk uh, in the book about empathy on how to make empathy happen, the steps that you need to take to actually go from listening to really understanding, which is a whole different thing. Um, we talk in the book about um, how not to get uh, complacent. We look at a few different uh, case studies from Toys R Us to uh, uh, Pan Am Airlines. And we talk about different sort of traps that they got stuck into. Uh, you know, the the plethora of choices is one that's in there. A lot of businesses tell me, Nir, I'm really creative. I've got so many ideas. I just don't know what to do with them. You know, uh, it's the paralysis of choice is also uh, a trap, right? And that's what happened to uh, to Pan Am in the uh, 70s and 80s. They were, you know, being hijacked and all of this stuff. And they had creativity embedded within the organization. So they literally had, you know, the seedlings of the TSA. They had metal detectors and, and scanners and all of this amazing technology um, that they shared with, with, with the military and was bought up sort of to protect civilian air travel. Um, and literally they couldn't make a decision to save their lives, John. Like they had all of these really good ideas and nobody could decide, you know what, we should do the metal detector or, you know what, let's scan baggage, so on and so forth. Right. Um, and it literally led to a paralysis of choice because when you do nothing, you're still doing something. And what ended up happening was, you know, they got hijacked some more uh, time, deregulation hit in the U.S. market uh, for for uh, domestic travel, and it all sort of unraveled. And so I talk about, you know, how to not make those mistakes. Um, again, the book's got 92 tools, and every one of them is a how. 
every single one of them is how to do this, how to do that. I get emails from readers, which is really cool. Um, you know, saying, Hey, you know, I read this, this one chapter and it really helped me in this part of my life or in this part of my business. And those are the best, but I also get emails from people who are like, this is ridiculous. How would, I would never use one of your techniques. And, you know, I, I got an email about a week ago. I talked about this. I had a, I did a week long, uh, presentation seminar for uh, a fortune 500 company. And I talked in the, that, you know, if somebody asks a question, they're like, near, this is great. But like, do you ever get like people who hate stuff? I'm like, totally. <laughs> and so I got an email from this guy who was like, I would never use your concept idea and execution method. I, I talk about how to frame ideas that you have to generate creativity. It's really about grabbing a pen and a piece of paper and writing down the concept, the idea, and the execution of your business or your career. And you're able to go through those three stages, huge to you know product level, to skew level, with creativity. And it teaches people how to rekindle that creativity that we were all born with. And so it works for people and people love it. But once in a while, I get an email. So this guy sent me an email that I would never organize my ideas by, you know, large, medium and small. And how dare you tell me to, you know, come up with different executions to launch a new product. And I'm reading this thing and I'm like, you know what? He's literally following the book. Like he's, he's upset. That's cool. You know, however you come to it, you come to it. But he's literally telling me why he doesn't like maybe the way that I'm naming things, John, but he likes the way uh, the process. So it really is all about process and teaching people habits that make them more creative, teaching them different things that they can do every day to become more creative. And one thing that I recommend all of your listeners do now to become more creative. I mean, literally they're listening to this podcast and it's great. And they're like, near, I'm totally charged up. I don't have $19 to buy your book. Although you should, because it's really affordable. And it's the only thing that you pay for in the entire book. Everything in the book is free. Every single thing in the book costs zero. It's free. It's a mind shift change or an activity that you have to do. So I talk in a book about grabbing a piece of paper and a pen and writing stuff down. When you're able to write stuff down, you activate a different portion of the mind. And literally we've studied this and, and, and I have the science to back it up. But when you write something down, you take the pressure off yourself of getting it right. And you allow for that idea to have its life on its own without being completely and utterly censored by all of your negative thoughts. Um, we talk in a book about how to conquer those negative thoughts because something like 80% or 82% of our thoughts daily, John, are negative daily. And wow. I thought, oh, it's got to be English, right? You know, because we're, you know, uh, descendants of the uh, of the crown, right? And, you know, England, it's, it's like gloomy. It's gloomy and it rains all the time. So that's where negativity comes from, right? Uh, but it's not. It, it's completely a, a human thing. It, we found it in every single culture on earth. We have way more words to describe negative things than positive things. We're predisposed to negative thoughts. And so I talk in the book about how to get rid of those. One of them is writing stuff down. When you write stuff down, you let go of that like love affair with your idea and that preciousness that you just want to pet your idea and keep it from people. Oh no, nobody can see this. This is my idea. Well, when you write stuff down and you get in a habit 
of learning how to systemize your writing down, um, you unleash real creativity. That's something your listeners can do right now. That's great. And one of the things um, I, I, I do every single day as, as a habit is I take my dog for a walk early in the morning every day. And when I'm on those walks, um, I listen to a podcast. And those podcasts have generated so many ideas uh, because sometimes I agree with what they're saying on the podcast. Oftentimes, my experience from actually doing it is much different um, and opposes what they're saying. But uh, that's whether it's the articles I've written or podcasts that I do or topics that I pick. You know, I get back off those walks and I, you know, I write down, you know, these are the inputs I have to do today. But I also write down, I really like this concept that I heard. I really like this concept that I heard. Or like today, I was watching uh, or listening to Impact Theory and they had Coach Bear on there, Mike Bear. And he was talking about the reasons that you need to change your perspective. I'm like, dude, you just stole a chapter out of my book. But at least it tells you that you're onto something. You're on something. Yeah. You know, a lot of this stuff is, it's similar, but different, you know? So you, you have somebody saying something, but their approach and the way that they sort of came to that idea is different. And I think that's what makes all of it incredibly valuable. Um, usually a listener or a reader is going to absorb what's relevant to them. You know, and they're kind of like whatever on the other stuff, but this, this morsel really speaks to me. And so I think the more that you have of that, I, I think you call them inputs and that's fantastic. I think the more that you have those that, that you know, can relatively shoot you into a, a, a proper target, I think the better. Yeah, so um, I, I agree. And I think it aligns, this concept that I'm going to talk about aligns with much of what you just talked about. Um, I recently did a podcast on, I called it Stop Self-Sabotaging Yourself by being a visionary arsonist. And this concept of visionary arsonist, it's how many times has a company done the things that you're talking about? You know, I see this all the time in private equity. They play the same playbook every single time. Let's go after expenses. Let's economize this. Let's perfect this. Let's do that. But often what's what gets visionized is that passion or that creativity that made that company grow to where it was. And that gets sidelined. And because they're focused on bringing all these economies to scale and, and, you know, trying to, you know, rework this process, as you said, or, you know, get this, you know, not, don't worry about top line growth. Let's get your EBITDA up. They lose the creativity because they're a visionary arsonist to their own, you know, what got them here. Um, and so I see so many of these companies, the private equity groups end up selling them and then they flatline because they've lost whether, you know, I would call it that passion start culture that they had or the creativity that was driving them before because they get caught up in doing activities, these inputs that aren't really driving them, as you would say, to this creative endpoint that they could get to. Um, and, and I see it not only in companies, I see it all the time in people's lives. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I, I, I've, I've studied this quite a bit and, you know, we were all born creative. It's, it's something that happened as a means of survival. So, you know, we talk in the book about the first creative human being was being attacked by a beast at night. It was a 
dark and lonely, cold night, you know, yeah. and she was being attacked and she was in her cave moments from death. And she put a stick and a, and a berry picker that were nothing but a stick and a berry picker. And she put them together and was able to you know, use it as a spear to save her life. And immediately she ran into her village and shared it. And it grew into, hey, if I'm creative, I can survive. And here we are in 2021, and we've lost our way a bit with creativity. We've lost that sense of what keeps us alive. And so, you know, these companies, these private equity companies that you're talking about have lost their sort of impetus of what makes them who they are. I've done work with with a lot of groups from a pizza franchise to manufacturing. And every time I sit in a room or on Zoom and I ask people what it is that they're doing and, and what their create their sort of creative DNA is. And nine out of 10 times, people will say it's the SKU or it's the product. That's what we do. We do this. And I'll say, yeah, but why? Because every single person in the room could be making way more money if y'all were doing something else. And they go, yeah, totally. Of course, of course. And then people start to think about it for a while and they go, you know what? When I was a kid, I was really, really into this, or our founder came over from Italy with that. And this, that's the meaning of why we're doing this sort right. of thing. And and so, okay, now that we've found the meaning uh, of what it is that we're doing, how do we apply it every day? And so it's really important for people to understand why they're there or, or, you know, how they're doing what they're doing and why it is that they're there. I don't believe in coincidences or, you know, anything like that. I believe that everybody's doing what they are doing for a reason. And so, once you kind of understand that, then you could say, okay, let's not lose that and let's apply it every day, that DNA that we have to those inputs, right? And unless the, it's a very easy test, right? You ask yourself, does this, is this relevant to the brand? Yes or no? There's no gray areas. It either works or it doesn't. And sometimes what works is really creative. It's different, but unless it has that, that thread of connectivity, to the DNA of the effort of your business or your career or whatever it is that you're doing, um, you're just running in circles, being productive uh, in meetings all day and wondering why, you know, you're an endless Zoom call and you haven't bought in a penny more of, of profit and your revenue is soaring, but your profit's going down. All kinds of things like that, or, you know, nothing is moving and you've kind of rested on success, uh, which I talk about in the book. Unless you understand the DNA of who you are as a creative human being and why it is is that you're doing what you're doing, you can't expect to be successful. I want to do a quick segue um, to, to this um, experience I had. When I was CIO at Dell, um, I got to work with a very talented uh, chief marketing officer. Her name was Erin uh, Mulligan Nelson. And Erin and I had a lot of great accomplishments uh, working together. We created the number one social brand. Um, we're one of the first doctors of listening tools, et cetera. But while we were there, she also came up with a brand new brand image for Dell. And it was this, we were going to change the whole marketing to Dell, the power to do more. Because Dell at that time was, you know, people were so focused that we were a computer company 
And we were trying to switch to being known for creating solutions. And it's not as much the skew, as you say, as what is the experience that you can do with it. And I remember being at this senior leadership meeting for VPs and up, and she unleashed this video that had some people in the audience crying because it was such um, a great representative of what you could do with the Dell products. And for whatever reason, I, I don't know to this day, the board uh, decided to pull the whole campaign. Um, and I, I think it, it could have changed the whole trajectory. But with that closing thought, I know we're a little bit short on time. And one of the things the audience likes the most on these is my rapid round of questions. So I'm going to hit you with uh, three or three or four of them. So the first sure I would say is, what is your kryptonite? Um, I think it's uh, going into a room and being able to read it spot on. Um, I think a lot of times the subtext is far more important than what is being said. Okay. Um, what would be your favorite superhero and why? Um, I would say Wonder Woman because she's badass and awesome. Okay. No explanation needed. Um, if you could win any award, which one would you want to win and why? Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, probably the Nobel prize because they don't give those out a lot. And that would be, it would be really great. I think creativity has the ability to unleash human potential that we haven't done yet. I feel like we could have easily have cured cancer by now. We could have landed, you know, someone on Mars, we could have reached our potential, but we self edit and, we, uh, we tell ourselves, oh, this is not a good idea, you know, and I would never go out on a limb and share this creative idea kind of like Aaron did with, uh, with Dell. You know, she took a risk, a creative risk, and went out there and wanted to do something different and got shot down for it. Um, but imagine if it would have worked. Imagine it would have worked. And I, I have to tell you a, a trivia thing I found out. Um, a person who I wholeheartedly expected to have won the Nobel Peace Prize um, was actually nominated, but uh, failed to receive it because he was assassinated in the year he was nominated. And that was oh, Gandhi. Wow. So yeah. Gandhi, who you would have, and if you talk to the Nobel laureates, they say the, the biggest uh, missing person from the Nobel Prize is actually Gandhi. Gandhi, yeah, yeah. Well, Nir, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, you had so much inspiration and guidance for the listeners. I know they're going to just love this episode. So thank you so much. And um, where can they find your book? Yeah, so it's in uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any bookstore across the country. If you want to put on a mask and go get it, it's in the bookstores. Uh, you can get it online. Uh, my email uh, website is nirbashan.com, N-I-R-B-A-S-H-A-N.com. Okay, well, great. Well, Nir, thank you so much again. It was a great time doing this with you. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. I think many of the points Nir brought up today are absolutely spot on from my experience working in many different companies. And like the story I talked about at Dell with Howard Do More, so many companies today are focusing on economies and the bottom line that they are not putting enough research and development into what is really driving their culture, what is driving people, their fans, their customers who want to buy the products that they're creating. Oftentimes, it's this creativity that he talked about or this culture of passion that a company 
and create that makes fans everywhere jump on board and become enamored with that brand, with their products, because they see it, as I saw it in the Dell example, as how are these products, services, whatever they may be, impacting me and making me be better at who I am or what I do. I hope you learned as much today as I did from here, and I wholeheartedly appreciate each and every one of you for taking the time to listen or watch this podcast. And I hope we all are making passion go viral. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck Podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Struck community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us.